0: Hi, I'm Kate LaVale.
1: And I'm Michael Vieira. Welcome to this episode of The Canary Group.
0: We've spent our careers working in global strategy, communications, analytics, and intelligence. And if there's one thing we've learned, it's that nothing is ever quite as it seems.
1: With more information than ever, moving faster than ever, it's becoming harder than ever to understand the world around us. So we're on a mission to combat the tyranny of conventional wisdom,
0: to connect the dots and answer the so what,
1: and empower you to do the same.
0: Hi, welcome to today's episode of the Canary Group Podcast. Today we're gonna to be talking about Turkey. Uh this one I think is is a favorite for both me and Michael. Turkey is truly unique. When we were coming up with fun names for this, um a couple that came to mind was the rise of Ottoman II, or the country that won't be ignored. It is the only one of its kind, and it is paradoxical. It is both relatively young as a country, but also incredibly historic and relevant. There are just so many things that make it not cleanly sit in one box or another.
1: Well, historically, it goes all the way back to the Roman Empire, at least for us in the West, um, and then the Byzantines, and then the Ottomans, and now we're in the Turkish Republic, uh, the Republic of Turkey. Um, it straddles across Europe and Asia. It has one foot in Asia, one foot in, in Europe. It's since uh, its establishment in 1921, 1922, it's been a. It's seen itself, I think, as being a um, uh, more of a. a an international player. It has tried to be part of the international community. Uh, It was one of the Mm -hmm. early proponents. I think it it joined NATO very, you know, it tried to get into the EU, part of the, I think the ECC, the the precursor to the EU, Um, it was getting into that. Um, But it's always been sort of an outsider. You've probably noticed that too. And it's because of its identity. I mean, Mm -hmm. culturally, linguistically, uh, ethnically, it's very different from all its neighbors. They're uh, they're Turkmen, so they're not they're not Arab, they're not Persian. Uh, they're language don't
0: call them Arab,
1: right? Exactly. Don't, yeah, don't um, do that. Um, but they're also, I mean, but historically too, they have had just a different. They have different outlooks of how they're looking at the world. They see themselves as a strong regional power. They have aspirations they always have, mm-hmm. uh, and, and what you've seen in Syria, what you're seeing in Azerbaijan and in, in Armenia um it's seen as a gateway to europe by other powers so china you know sees uh turkey as being mm-hmm. extremely powerful, uh as an extremely powerful ally but turkey's very pragmatic and turkey does for itself it's looking out for its self interests which doesn't necessarily translate into helping other people's interests
0: mhm and i think you know there there are some very again you, just unique characteristics. It is a secular state, um, but the state controls the church. So it's predominantly um, Islamic. However, it constitutionally, they are secular. So I think that's one of the first most um, visible sort of paradoxes. Um, it's also one of the only countries in the region, especially if you're looking within within Asia and the Middle East, it's one of the only countries where social mobility is easily attained. They're highly capitalistic. I should caveat this, that it's easily attained for men, um, not so much for women. But they also
1: have... I don't know necessarily about that. I mean, there is a, there has been a very strong... Maybe recently, but there has been a strong tradition in Turkish society, in in the post-Ottoman world, to promote women and to have women uh, be more, uh, I would say, uh, in the region, I would say they were more progressive about, you know, where they were putting uh, the value and balance on women. It may not be equal, but it has been.
0: I would would say say it's not equal. (laughs) I think that's safe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not equal, but it's definitely better than you know some other places at least historically.
0: They've also sort of counter to a lot of their their neighbors. They have leaned into state sponsored schools and universal access to education. So you have you have a population that can go out and really compete in the world. That is that's not something that's a given at all. Uh, that certainly sets their population apart. They obviously speak a different language. Um, this is, you know, everything that they're sort of prioritizing within their culture is to create global citizens who are going to be able to go out and advocate for Turkey. You know, at the same time, it's a heavily agricultural culture, but there's a very cosmopolitan industrialized urban class uh, that continues to to both generate and enjoy uh, additional opportunities their media is heavily sophisticated but free speech is heavily regulated i think up until a few years ago i think it may have changed now with everything that's going on turkey enjoyed the highest number of journalists jailed uh so free speech is not quite up there as a priority yet and at the same time the culture is highly collectivist they work you know they're they're nationalistic they're collectivist they work as a group they're also really capitalistic and so those two things typically don't go together i don't know if this is something that that you've seen michael but it it it's a funny interaction when you have people who are so collectivist culturally and then you know professionally politically highly highly capitalistic
1: i think it's part of just uh, being on a crossroads uh so turkey turkey has always been it was the it was the part of the silk road uh, when goods were being shipped from china through there it's always been the transit point between east and west between europe and uh the you know the middle east north africa um it's been a place for ideas to come in um Plus, it's also a transit point. I mean, it has a north-south mm-hmm. and an east-west um, axis of travel. So you know, civilizations have come through you know, Turkey for centuries, if not maybe millennia. So it's a very dynamic uh, culture, um, and it brings with it, I think, certain sensibilities. So it has some of the western-oriented sensibilities and some of the eastern-oriented mm-hmm. sensibilities, and things that we think, probably in the west, that we, we look at nepotism and we look at um, you know, maybe some things that we would call corruption—they uh, look as just a normal way of doing business, business or as it doesn't. Usual, it, of yeah. course, it makes sense, right? Of course, it makes sense that I'm going to take care of my own. Um, and if you look at that from not a right or a wrong, and just looking at that as a particular way of way you're doing things, that I would explain. Why, I think that's why you have sort of this, this—you know—I'm not want to use mishmash, but sort of this 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 conglomeration of very contradictory sort of you know behaviors and and and. Uh, their society moving in the direction it does.
0: A great example of that is, you know, again, this is this is a state that is very focused on growth and, you know, personal achievement at the same time their culture is very leisurely. So, if you're doing business in the region, you want to make sure that those first few meetings are really about building a relationship and not doing business. You know, the relationship, the pacing is slow. It's a fairly relaxed culture. Again, this doesn't seem to jive with this really, really hearty ambition. I think with all of these paradoxes, you know, it's one question that I am always sort of chewing on is, did Turk? it's sort of a chicken or the egg. Turkey is is geographically positioned right between the East and West. And with its history of sort of empire upon empire upon empire layered on top of it and and it's really really rich diverse history i i find myself thinking is turkey so diverse and is it able to successfully integrate these what would seem conflicting traits and characteristics because of its geographical position or is it this is how the community managed to to grow? This is how the culture managed to thrive was embracing that sort of diversity and dichotomy, which made it the perfect place for that intersectionality.
1: Uh, I think it's well, it's it's almost like two separate countries, right? So mm-hmm. you have the part that's on the Mediterranean, and then you have the part that's the more traditional, the Anatolian part in the in the east. I think that there's a different sort of Turkey. Uh, and I think the Turkey that most Westerners, Europeans and Americans think of is the Mediterranean, the European facing side. So, but I think that it's possible to have a, you can, you can entertain two separate identities, I think, simultaneously. I think people do that all the time. Um, you know, we all, we can, we can have contradictions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest contradiction, though, when we talk about diversity, it's still diversity though within a sort of a homogeneous kind of culture or group, uh, barring outside, of course, you know the Kurds, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But the Turks themselves, I think, see themselves historically as being you know sort of a, a homogeneous group, you know, with a mm-hmm. with certain goals. The changes and differences may be where you reside within there. If you're an Anatolian peasant, say, versus a uh, a business person who's out in Istanbul, you would probably be looking at things very differently. You know, your worldview is different, but it's still Turkey
0: that's not unlike the u s oh, that's true, yeah. you find you find highly, you know, sort of more more progressive thinkers in urban areas and then you get out towards more rural areas and you find more traditional values. And you know that's certainly not a rule by any stretch. But at the same time, yeah, we are. We are just as diverse, I guess. It's unique to me, though, in one reason why I love Turkey is that it its identity is the the coexistence of dichotomies. It truly sort of represents this very unique persona in a way that can can hold both as true at the same time. Uh, and that is a predominant feature that pops off the page about Turkey that, it is, it is one of a kind. You need to learn it as a nuanced culture that you can't just assume things are one way or the other. You really have to pay attention um, to be successful in the region and and also to work with the Turks. So, yeah, I, I do think it's... I think before, before we get into sort of the present-day role of Turkey, it would be great to... Rewind, go back a little bit to sort of the the last days of the Ottoman Empire uh, to better understand the incredible evolution of this of this culture in a relatively short amount of time. Michael, so towards the end of the Ottoman Empire, what were their relationships like with their neighbors?
1: Uh, I would say their relationships with their neighbors were complex and conflicted. They've always had a, if you look at Europe, there has always been a fear of, uh, of Islamic encroachment. So it came from the south, you know, through Spain and through coming from the east, coming in through uh, the Balkans and then through, you know, into what's modern-day Austria. Um, in fact, you and I were talking earlier that uh, the croissant is actually a symbol of, uh, it was of the Europeans uh, defeating of the Turks, I think, at the Battle of Vienna. So there's always been this very strong sort of feeling that the Turks were encroaching in and bringing in sort of like a foreign influence. And that sort of explains sort of the reluctance of Europe to fully embrace modern day Turkey. Um, And you see the relationship that that Turkey has with Russia. That's very old. Um, And that's been along religious and cultural lines uh, where the, the... uh, the Russians saw themselves as pushing back on this foreign encroachment of, you know, of Islam and also bringing in the Turkish, uh, Turkish encroachment into Europe itself. And then to the south, uh, much of the Levant and Saudi Arabia over to Egypt, all of that had been part of the Ottoman Empire, but it began to fragment and decay. It was already well on its way of becoming sort of independent. It was operating under, not only under the rule of the Ottomans, but it was uh, becoming sort of independent and in how it operated uh, probably before the first world war so by mm-hmm. the by the first world war um, Turkey was sort of the sick old man of Europe and it was one of the leading causes uh, because all the countries in Europe were lining up to to go after Turkey uh, when it, eventually it was going to fall and they were looking at all the pieces that they wanted but it didn't quite go the way they wanted and so so when Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Um, he was actually a young military officer. He was reform-minded, uh, and he was part of the group of Turks that had defeated the uh, the British incursion into Gallipoli, when the the French and the British were trying to open the Straits, the Dardanelles Straits, to take Istanbul. Um, that was actually a major, you know, step into the idea of a Turkish identity, not an Ottoman identity. And so by the end of the oh, and also during the uh, the the late Ottoman Empire, there were things like the Armenian genocide, which is heavily contested by the uh, by the Turks to this day. but you saw you know, there was just a lot of things that have left baggage that the Turkish Republic has had to sort of pick up the pieces afterwards
0: to to go a little bit deeper on the Armenian genocide, the Turks saying that they didn't do it, all evidence to the contrary it creates a level of distrust that you don't necessarily believe what they're saying. And I think that those are some lasting marks that that carry through that sort of as a culture, when you can't necessarily agree on reality, um, it becomes very hard to sort of trust the other's word and interpretation of events, wouldn't you say?
1: Uh abs- yeah, I'm here I'm gonna use absolutely again, but it fits it fits into this. Um <laughs> But look at, if you look at this, you have the historical context and then you have the modern context. Um, Turkey and Russia currently right now have sort of they're finding things to agree upon, but there's things that they disagree upon. But there's not a coincidence that Turkey is backing up the Azerbaijanis, who are a Turkish people, versus the Russians backing up the Armenians. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't think that an Armenian would be too... I don't know how Armenians would feel about an rapprochement with Turkey. The current situation...
0: Probably not so great, yeah. yeah.
1: But the current situation right now, I mean, has very deep historical roots. And so if you're looking at the, the current conflict, it goes way, way back and will probably continue to keep moving forward. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, if you wanted to look at things with with. The the Ottoman Empire had been, in, especially in its late stages, was basically very dysfunctional. It was sclerotic. It wasn't. Uh, it, its 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 mechanisms weren't working very effectively. And so by you know 1923 to 1929, uh, when you see the, the the new modern Turkish state under you know Atatürk under uh, Kemal Atatürk you start seeing changes in the culture. And we had talked earlier, I think, about how women were seen, um, it became more secular, but it also came under the control of the military. But would you like to address, I think, some of the economic parts of that period?
0: Yeah, so what we saw, and I think it's easy to imagine how this, came, how this played out, but recovering from World War I as a new nation, um there was really i would say an economic focus on private accumulation you know so a bit more i wouldn't say individualistic but looking out for your own looking out for what you can get for survival less so state driven um so during this time you know people it was it was rebuilding and i think you see the same thing with any with any group that is rebuilding there's sort of let's focus on the basics um so that's certainly where their heads were at that time.
1: That's like 1923 to 1929, you said? Yeah,
0: 1923 so the the beginning of Turkey to about 1929 certainly, you know, the global economics were relatively positive during that time. It was rebuilding. Um so things were were looking better although of course there was international tension as we all know. And I think that really shifted from 1929 to about 1945 during World War II. Or the beginning of and 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 sort of through midway through World War II, then you saw Turkey, who did not participate in World War II, they learned their lesson, um, but you saw that shift to more of um, a focus on state-driven accumulation. So, what can Turkey secure rather than individuals in Turkey? What can Turkey, as as a nation, begin to accumulate? So. You know that's where you get into looking at resources, looking at um, different industries. Um It's sort of the precursor, I would say, to to industrialization.
1: And during that time, too, it saw most of its form it saw most of its old empire had been uh, occupied by Western European powers. Some of them had gone independent but were into the influence, I think, of like the British and the French, um you know historically. So at the end of 1945, uh, you know, what do we see Turkey look like?
0: This is an inflection point for Turkey. Uh, It becomes sort of fully transitioned to an industrialization-based economy. So they are really focused on imports. It is all about building up, building industry, uh, mechanization, and I think this is where we see them truly starting to. You know, hint that they want to be seen as a European global power, global influence. Uh, they want Turkey to sort of be seen as its own unique identity, but within Western Europe.
1: Uh, that's absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and the fact also that I think after post 1945, Turkey really wanted to be seen as a country that was embracing. I think the in- the new internationalist order. Uh, It was one of the early signatories for the United Nations. Um, It was one of the early members of NATO, because it saw itself as... uh, It wanted to bind itself, I think, more into a security. And then economically, it became part of the, I think, the European, the ECC, so the early, the precursor Mm -hmm. to the EU. It was one of the early signatories to that. Um, And you saw... I think economically, you saw also Turkey, a lot of Turks migrating to Germany to help, to, in West Germany, to help to provide, you know, uh, I think, you know, the post war manpower uh, to help mm-hmm. to fuel Germans' post war industrial, you know, revitalization. Um, so let's just say then from 1950, what was going on then? So I'm saying like 1950 up until like, you know, I guess 1980s, what was Turkey looking like economically?
0: Yeah, so again, you see this, this industrialization that that we mentioned. So it's really expanding. It's starting to play on a global stage. They are also tr- sort of the second step for industrialization is looking at becoming a major trade hub. So they are growing with goods, services. Um, it, it becomes a mecca for financial markets, again, both ge- geographically as well as just it's its international feel, it becomes a major sort of intersection for trade of all kinds. And this is something that I think carries through to this day that it sort of can speak all dialects in a way because of how it's positioned and how it's both, you know, allied itself with the East and the West and maintained a unique identity that doesn't necessarily require it to take such stark sides so we are able to to see turkey become the turkey that we all know and recognize as far as being very much it it is you know a a very industrialized very i'd say civilized country but one that is has its own unique culture uh and also then Um, is able to interact and have a a very special um, and I hate to use the word unique again but a very unique relationship with all of these players that that sets it apart so it really is kind of like in a way the the hub on a wheel you know all roads kind of lead through Turkey I'd love to dig in a little bit more as far as NATO goes and and Turkey's history there
1: well, it was, uh, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, in 1950, Turkey joined the United Nations and went into Korea, which was significant. It mm, wanted to be seen mm-hmm. as being part of the international order, so it fought in Korea. Um, and then from the 1950s up until, you know, well, into in the 1980s, it was securing NATO's southern flank. Uh, it was a key player on the Black Sea against the Soviet Union. I think economically, if I can kind of poach uh, on that, I would say it was very, uh, you had Tito's Yugoslavia, which had sort of broken away from the Warsaw Pact and was kind of operating semi-independently and had a different relationship with Europe. And you had Turkey, which was nominally, you know, of the West and of NATO and and with the ECC, but was able to work and trade uh, within those areas. And so I think that that, was an interesting period of time i think from you know from the 1960s until like the 1980s where you had these two countries that were sort of in but sort of out of their respective blocks and provided i mean they were still you know i think militarily aligned but i think economically they were more independent
0: so it sounds like turkey is in europe but not of europe
1: uh, that's correct i think that's a correct assessment um, it it is in a lot of the institutions, uh, but it also has a lot of frictions with Europe. Uh, we've seen, um, because part of its territorial claims against with Greece, it went into Cyprus uh, in, I think, the 1970s, and uh, since then has also pursued you know a semi-independent you know foreign policy that at times has pushed against, I think, the EU, NATO, and the United States uh, with their desires and what's going on. And we see that right now. Entirely, um, but because of their economic and their their geographical position of where they are in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Black Sea, uh, they can uh, successfully do those types of things. They can operate independently because they uh, they have um, just enough economic clout, enough military clout to be able to do that. But they've never really quite gone so far to break those relationships because they see the value of being part of it. Um, and a lot of the things that Turkey has done over the past a uh, few years under, and I think we can talk about that. First of all, let's talk about like, where they've gone from So from 1980 to the now. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think economically where Turkey was coming from? And then we can talk about the political part.
0: So from, from 1980 on, we really see Turkey sort of explode onto the scene as far as just fully, fully diving in on trade for goods, services. They have an extremely dynamic financial market. Um, It really has become a crossroads for globalization. Uh, And they have, they have certainly positioned themselves again, uniquely and very well to be able to play with most of the players on the board. Um, So From an economic standpoint, Turkey is, I think you could make the argument, potentially best suited to be able to maximize relationships with uh, a number of nations that otherwise might be at conflict. Um, So they really can kind of go between, uh, which has made them a really interesting and valuable group for dealing with trade issues, dealing with politics, dealing with uh, conflict, dealing with just about everything. You know, that's something I would certainly say we will continue to see Turkey playing that role that is never truly aligned with one side or the other. Sort of the, the expression of there's the right way, the wrong way, and then your boss's way. In this case, we've got the right way, the wrong way, and the Turkish way that they're going to they're going to do something that is uniquely beneficial to them and not necessarily and I think that that's also something that makes it hard for Turkey to really fully fully dive into Europe with the EU to fully dive into NATO become one of the group they are they now have a, a fairly established history of always sort of being on their own side
1: would that be more of be just being pragmatic?
0: I think you could say that, yeah. I think they've also, because they haven't necessarily been fully embraced by any one group, they are not Arab, they are not seen as necessarily European, um, they've kind of had to figure out their own identity. And I, I think that cuts both ways. Just as they were not fully embraced into these different, you know, different cultures, they were not seen as, you know, fully Asian. Um, All of this, they have been set apart. And so their identity and their culture is set apart. So, you know, I think it goes back to that chicken or egg question of, you know, did the circumstances make Turkey or did Turkey make the circumstances? Probably both. I do think it's, it is very pragmatic. I also don't know that they could work any other way because this is just, um, you know, such such a perfect exemplar of who Turkey is.
1: One of the things too about Turkey is I think they see themselves as a country of destiny, uh, which may not necessarily be recognized by um, a lot of their peers, uh, or it may not be understood by the United States or be understood by uh, the, the key European Union uh, powers. But for the Turks themselves, they see themselves for a very long tradition, a very long history of where their place is in the world, and especially in the neighborhood that they're in now. And one of the things is that you've seen a great deal since the fall of the Soviet Union. So you know, we've seen since 1990-91, uh, we've seen that Turkey has found itself to be sort of a bigger player. Uh, without you know, now that the Russians, the Soviets are no longer you know pushing on their borders, uh, they now have these smaller countries. And I think they saw a lot of, I think they saw like a lot of opportunities going in there yeah. you know, from the '90s and then to the you know, to the modern age.
0: Absolutely, they have managed to figure out a way to develop relationships that are nuanced with each of these groups. That um, you know, in a way, they're not putting all their eggs in one basket, like they did with World War One. In fact, they you know, their relationships are diversified in a way to to create a level of stability for 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 you know how they're going to survive in the future one of the biggest components of um where turkey will go and the the health and and vitality of turkey really does relate to sort of their their current leadership i think it's important that we talk about erdoğan because he has you know it's likely he's going to be a leader for the course of his life. It seems like he's headed towards being president for life. You know, his cabinet, he has built up this cabinet of global players. For better or worse, these people are incredibly well known. They are smart. Um, they have served in different capacities, uh, certainly within intelligence, within trade, uh, finance. Uh, his cabinet is a bunch of power players. And so I think Understanding more about him and his approach is going to be really critical to understanding the future of Turkey.
1: I absolutely agree I think that one of the things was is that before uh, Erdogan became president in 2014 the Turkish military had a very uh, Had a very strong role in running the country and that would explain things like going into Cyprus or uh, sort of its antagonistic um, view to some parts of uh, the NATO uh, the NATO uh, constellation so but when he came in, he was one of the first—I think he was the first president who was, like, freely elected without, you know, the backing of the military. Mm-hmm. And what he's been doing since 2014 is he's been he's been dismantling, I think, a lot of the military's control and bring it more under, I think, the control of the civilian leadership. Uh, however, he has sort of gone against—the military had at least had been promoting, I mean, secularism for a long time, but he's reintroduced religion into public space— um, and tried to bring religion more into the forefront, I think, in the country. Um, but as you said, yeah, he's he's he and his party are trying to set themselves up to be in power for a very long time. But in Turkish politics, if you're looking from a Western point of view, that's I mean that seems to be intoler- intolerable. But for you know traditional, I think Turkish politics, it's not seen as necessarily being you know out of line with the historical context.
0: Okay, so when we say, you know, he's looking at being the possible president for life, what does what does that mean?
1: Well, he was reelected this year. We saw in 2023, and it was a lot of speculation about how the election would go forward. Um, the opposition was fragmented, and there was uh, suspicious—I uh, think you're an expert, I think, on, on information and how to use misinformation, but there was a lot of suspicious— uh, things that came up that befell a lot of his um his his opponents. Um and at the end, he and his party they won. But I think that he's had a number unfortunate of
0: unfortunate sc- timing. There was a lot of unfortunate timing to discoveries of of corruption and um sort of double dealing
1: sure or or personal uh, personal um issues yes. that would pop mm-hmm. up with the candidates. But also, I think that, I mean there was uh, there's a lot of corruption, so a lot of money was flowing to a lot of people, and so he was able to secure. Um, so he's not necessarily, I think, the strong man. You know, he's not like the person who's running things purely by force of will. Turkey's not that kind of country, but he is able to keep just enough pieces on his side uh, and keep enough. He's able to keep enough plates in the air that he's able to continue this. Where he'll be. Uh, under his you know the next election you know we'll wait and see what's going on um but even despite having economic issues that that arose i think there was there was a lot of problems with oh gosh uh the turkish currency the lira was was uh was i mean was devalued and i think that they had a great deal of they've had they had inflationary problems uh long before Mm -hmm. everybody else did um But they still are managing, they're still dynamic enough economically to keep, you know, I think to keep moving forward. And they've been looking toward countries like China who are not afraid to spread a lot of money around. You know, they can't get money from the Europeans and they can't get money from the United States. So they have to find ways to basically to to be able to get that sort of um, support. But things change so quickly, and we've seen. I think I think probably six or eight months ago, we would have said, "Well, you know, Turkey's probably on a trajectory to be going more toward you know China." But now that we've seen the war in Ukraine going the way that it has, you're seeing that um, I think Turkey is sort of pulling back the stick a little bit. It's still going to China, still operating with a lot of countries that you know you might think are um, inimical to you know, probably not in in Turkey's best Mm -hmm. interest long-term, but I think that Turkey is now redirecting itself, at least in the past couple of weeks or the past month, it's been redirecting itself toward, I think, uh, sort of mending some fences with the Europeans, but getting, it always makes sure that it gets something in turn. yeah.
0: Turkey, I think we can say never does anything just because, like, out of the goodness of its heart. There is always a very clear benefit, uh, which does make them, I would say, it's one of the few predictable things about them that they will always require uh, something in return or a beneficial outcome. And, and knowing that then we can sort of make sense of their choices. So overall, you know, I think we've seen a, like a, a greater push towards sort of political independence and towards, um, You know, Turkey doing what Turkey wants to do. Um, It's also involved those deeper ties with China and Russia. But things, as you said, have shifted. Uh, So with NATO, could we could you tell us a little bit more about um, I mean, Turkey has been in the news a lot with NATO. So trying to lean in and be that active partner, um, trying to have a say trying to determine who else is allowed to, to join all of these things, I think are, are really interesting for, um, an organization, NATO, you know, probably up until like last year or the year before was kind of like, eh, it's outdated. Nobody really needs it anymore. And now it's incredibly important, obviously, uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, And Turkey's trying to say like, what? I was always really active. I was always, you know, sort of, I always cared about this. What is, I guess the question is, what is the benefit to Turkey? Because there's always going to be a benefit for Turkey.
1: Well, Turkey will always press its advantages and when it, in to be admitted to NATO, you need to have a unanimous decision across the board of all the members of NATO. Every single country has a veto. Uh, for and there's a number of reasons why they could do that. Uh, and Turkey uh, has its reasons to to for the Finns and the Swedes. Part of it was politically because Turkey has a has an internal security problem yeah. with its Kurdish minority. You know. Um, and it's it's deathly afraid of a unified Kurdistan, and and that was one of the big reasons why Turkey was having a lot of was butting heads with the U.S. because the U.S. was in Syria and it has been using the Kurds for a number of years as it had seen the it, the Kurds as an ally and had been uh, in Iraq uh, Iraq Iran and Syria, and especially when we had forces on the ground and uh, in, in Syria we we relied a great deal upon uh, mm-hmm. I think along with the Kurds, to provide us with intelligence, but also just uh, to have that sort of moral and political support on the ground. Uh, that was something that I think that, that frightened the Turks to death. They didn't want to have, especially if the U.S. was was backing up probably the greatest insurgency that they're facing, uh, they were concerned about that. And the flip side, too, was that there was a lot of Kurds. Uh, a lot of Kurds had left Turkey and had gone to Seek Asylum. These were people who were Mm -hmm. were considered to be terrorists by the Turks. Uh, They ended up in Finland and mostly in Sweden. So I think Erdogan and I think Ankara saw particularly that this was a period that they could come in and get uh, concessions and get these countries to knuckle down and follow more closer to a a Turkish line. Um, At the same time, too, by holding up the process, uh, especially with Sweden, um, then that they could get concessions. And two of the concessions that I've heard about, one of two of the concessions was, I mean, they were getting drone technology from the Canadians and uh, F-16s from the United States, improved F-16s, you know, fighter jets, uh, that we were holding off on giving them for our concerns that, the Americans were concerned mm-hmm. that they were going to use the F-16s against the Kurds. And I think the Canadians were concerned about them using drones because the Turks had been supplying drones. Those drones, by the way, have been supplied to the Ukrainians and to uh, the Azerbaijanis uh, in, in recent wars. But now that we need them, I guess, you know, it, it, it was just, in I think, in NATO's interest to sort of cave in on some of these things. And there's been some talk, too, that the Turks may have received mm-hmm. other concessions, maybe economically. Um but if we can also talk about one more thing i would say that the the refugee crisis the pre you know the refugee crisis that came in europe uh that was allowed by the turks and i think that that was uh, put in uh, definitely no that mm-hmm. it was put in place by the turks to put pressure on europe um, because the turks said well you know we're just going to let these people through and this was the only way they saw that they could put pressure to to have the europeans consider them to because it's it's Turkey, it's still part of Turkey's ongoing desire to be a, a full fledged member of the EU, and the EU just continues to keep putting it off and putting it off. So you know, look for more crises like this. If, if the Turks can find a way to put pressure on NATO or put pressure on the EU or put pressure on somebody to make them listen to them, they'll use it.
0: So they are always there looking for the attention, um, trying to trying to somehow angle an invite to the party.
1: Right, they're Glen Close and Fatal Attraction. That's why I think <laughs> we said, you know, you they're the country <laughs> I that will not be, be ignored.
0: ignored, Michael. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, that's um, that's that's what I thought of when we were we first you know were writing this up. Uh, I think last week, and that's exactly in my mind that I see uh, Turkey is. They will a bunny boiler. Ooh, for lack of a better word, they yes, will boil
0: uh, the bunny. Yeah,
1: <laughs> If they have to, uh, uh, or at least threaten. You know, they'll hold the bunny over the yes. pot and say, "Oh my gosh, I, uh, that's 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 a scary that's a scary kind of idea." But it's the idea though that if it's if Turkey sees it, that that's in its natural national interest, it will do these types of things, and we've seen that with this relationship mm-hmm. with with Russia. It was. Yes. It had a conciliatory tone with with Putin for a while, until I think Turkey saw it didn't. It, Turkey doesn't want to see Russia win in Ukraine, and yeah, what that's why then they're supplying. So it, it, that's why they brokered, I think, the Ukraine deal for food.
0: Yeah, and we will we will definitely get to that in a minute. I think um, you also see Turkey. I mean, they they are very pragmatic. I think you hit the nail on the head. They, if they are not well aligned with Russia, they don't want to see Russia win at the same time because there are still uh, relationships there. A soft a soft exit would probably be preferable. That's looking less and less feasible. Uh, And so Turkey, of course, then needs to look out for Turkey, which means aligning further with with Europe um, and making sure that, you know, its its role is taken care of. I think this leads directly towards what we've all been hearing about the past week or so, the Black Sea deal. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Black Sea deal was?
1: Uh, Turkey, uh, in conjunction with the United Nations, brokered a deal with the Russians and the Ukrainians to allow uh, Ukrainian foodstuffs, mostly wheat and uh, and I think also sunflower oil, to come out of uh, three Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea. And it would allow the Russians to go in and to inspect shipping going in and shipping coming out to make sure the contraband wasn't coming in or out of the country. And then, for the idea was, then it would be allowed. I think it was, it was on a certain period of time that this deal was there, um, and the Russians had been off and on threatening because this was Russian leverage, right? Um, but mm-hmm. uh, but the Turks had, the Turks had given, you know, shown some good faith and supported the Russians on certain things, um, and so therefore they were they acted as sort of a guarantor, I guess. Uh, in the Black Sea, because they don't want to mm-hmm. see the Black Sea become a no-go, uh, no-go zone. Um, and this ran, but up to last week, in fact, right after we've recorded our food insecurity <laughs> podcast, the Russians yep. obliged us. <laughs> uh, thank you, Russia. Uh, made, us re- made us look very relevant. Yeah, irrelevant. your
0: timing was on point.
1: Impeccable, yeah. right. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I think we're reluctant to do something on nuclear conflict, because we're afraid of the consequences right. of what would happen. <laughs> um, you know, because we have that sort of power, folks. Um,
0: yes, I mean, we have influence, we do.
1: But the fact that now that Russia's backed out and the reasons why Russia's giving is, is that, well, you know, we were having problems uh, getting shipping and insurance to come into the Black Sea to move our own stuff out. Uh, it was, sounds reasonable, but I mean, there is a war going on They also on here.
0: weren't necessarily, yeah, they. this is, I think, the third time that Russia has backed out of the Black Sea deal and then a few days later they've rejoined. Uh, this one looks a, a bit more permanent, shall we say. You know, and, and some of the reasons in addition to just the challenges that they're having with sanctions, they're not seeing some of the advantages that this deal was supposed to uh, bring to Russia manifest. You know, of course, tariffs, any sort of, any sort of relief there it's it's not it doesn't you know with sanctions that that no longer really materializes so russia is not seeing the advantage in it for them other than being able to inspect cargo um and it may also be a great avenue for them to actually still be able to operate you know, under the cover of darkness in a way, but at the same time, you know, they see a greater benefit towards withdrawing. There are some major ramifications of this though.
1: Yeah. The biggest ones is that, I mean, the United Nations was talking about how the food deal was, uh, this food deal was offering it, uh, Ukrainian foodstuffs were going to, I think, forty countries. They had seen a market yeah. decline. I think in overall global food prices, which was very necessary. Which, but now uh, pulling out of this deal, you're seeing an immediate bump in things like you know foodstuffs. It, to to uh, to the industrialized world, you're already seeing it in bread and in pasta prices going up. Um, and you'll see a, probably a short term bump for that, or maybe a long term you know rise in other. Uh, other foodstuffs, but it's going to impact a lot of countries uh, that are de- that mm-hmm. are depending upon that that food to come through. The
0: it it really does threaten our global food system. Um, you know, for and again, back to our previous show for those countries that can afford to stockpile, that can afford to look for other avenues, um, alternatives for shipping and trade. Great for those countries that don't have those kind of options and resources. This is uh, potentially catastrophic.
1: And Turkey once again holds some cards, but also doesn't hold some cards. It controls access to the Black Sea. I mean, it's it's sovereign it's sovereign waters, and through international, very long standing international treaties. About what can and what cannot come through, and there's also physical constraints about the size of shipping that can come, come through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Turks want to see; they don't want to see the Black Sea become, like we said, uh, we don't want to see it being you know, totally closed off to the trade. They have posited that they might be willing to, and then withdrawn, but said, you know, we might guarantee the security of ships that are coming through and want to go and and get, you know, bring grain through but the grain issue I think for the russians is the russians don't see any value right now because they want to be able to punish mm-hmm. they would like to punish the global community and and put pain on them. And uh, number 2 is they don't they want to put as much uh, pain on the ukrainians. Um and if they can stop sea shipments through the black sea, that's it it does both things. Um but the flip yeah. but the flip side too it's is it's
0: petulant. That, right, but I mean it's it's they they're also kind of shooting themselves in the foot a bit, but You know, I don't I don't know that that's terribly surprising.
1: But one of the things here, too, is that, you know, suddenly Turkey realizes that things might be every time things get a little bit hot, you know, or things start looking like there may be a, um, you know, that war in Ukraine might be going in a a more dangerous direction. Turkey will sort of repair its it will try to repair sort of its uh, its relationship with the EU and NATO and the United States. So it's not entirely. Pre- it's not a full court press on its advantages. It takes. It's Turkey is smart enough to know uh, when to push, and you know, kind of like the, the old uh, the old song. You know, you know when to hold them. You know when to you fold don't them. your cards. Know
0: when to hold them.
1: Right. So. <laughs> know when to hold- oh yeah. Right. So they're 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 consummate game. I would use that. They're, Yes, they are gamblers, uh, and they they know when to play their cards, and they know when they have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come back. Um, so right now what they're trying to do, too, is just remind NATO that you know, we are part of NATO. And if something were to happen, you know, we'd probably need you guys to come in and you would defend us. Right. And it's like, well, you know, so they have to they have to come back and sort of, uh, you know, patch that uh, mend those fences that they're with, with their uh, with their erstwhile allies and and, and neighbors. <clears throat> I would say one of the things, though, is that the Eastern Europe, I would say that the Eastern Mediterranean uh, is is based is. Basically, Turkey's lake. Uh, that's their part of the world, um, and I think that they see that that's where um, you know you've got what's going on down in Syria, its relationships with Israel. Um, it sees the trade coming up from the you know from the Suez Canal. That's also you know a big part I think of Turkey, uh, and it wants to be able to exert I think more control and influence in that area. Um, and so I mean. That's you know the Black Sea and the Mediterranean I think are that the, the crossroads where it's very important for them. But if you're going looking you know more I think if you're looking more uh, easterly, Turkey also has uh, it looks to all the Turkmen peoples as being Turk you know and so it has it wants to build those sort of relationships with all of those Turkmenistan uh, you see the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also see Azerbaijan and you also see mm-hmm. it's ha- – but it also it's looking – we had talked about, I think, in our first episode, we talked about China and Turkey working together in what we call the weekend at Bernie's scenario where it's trying to prop yes. up Russia. It doesn't prop want to see – Russia. yep. Right. So that's the other relationships too is that it doesn't necessarily want to see a very strong Russia, but it can't afford to have a very, a very weak Russia or a collapsing Russia. So it can't – it has to play its cards too that it has to – you know that's one of the reasons why I think Erdogan was supporting and Ankara was supporting Russia to certain ways, uh, but it can't. But then it sells. It turns around, and sells drones to the Ukrainians that are using. So, right. That's the relationship you have with Turkey. You know, you have to when you're dealing with Turkey. That's the relationship you're going to have with them.
0: And I, I do think that that is you know again I would I would go so far as to say not only is Turkey a gambler, Turkey's also a survivor. They're going to look out for themselves um, and do what it takes to to navigate any situation. I think one one thing that really stands out to me, though, is even with the the withdrawal from the Black Sea deal, Russia's statements specifically call out that they are still working on avenues that they are that they will agree to with Turkey. So they may not be working with everybody else. They, you know, they may not be working with the United Nations. They're still talking to Turkey because Turkey maintains those relationships. They're not burning any bridges. They'll go just far enough before the bridge actually catches fire. It may be smoking a little bit, but it doesn't catch fire. So that positions Turkey, you know, in on the global stage as still somewhat allied to Russia, which for better or worse you know, I think you can see reasons why that is beneficial and, you know, potentially hazardous for Turkey and why Russia would mention that. It further sets apart Turkey from the Europeans. If Russia is not talking to anybody, but still talking to Turkey, Turkey must not be one of them. So there's a lot of sort of symbolism in their statements as well.
1: Yes. And I mean, the Turks were until very recently, you know, they were sort of I'm gonna say sanction busting, but they were through. With, I think through collusion with banks and businesses were funneling prescribed goods, you know, under the sanctioned regimes into Russia. Uh, you know, so you could they would buy things and then they would send it off into Russia. But then they had to end. I think the United States, you know, pretty much laid down the law on that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the Turks wanted to, didn't want to deal with being sanctioned by the U.S. or the, or, or by the uh, Europeans. But I think so. The Russians, though, were looking at the Turks and saying they're not going. They're not going to. They're uh, uh, not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're going to keep these relationships right. open with them because they still see the Turks as being useful. Um, and mm-hmm. that's the same thing with China. China sees Turkey as being useful. It allows them. It still gives them access to Europe. Um, it's a pliable state. Um, it's corruptible but i don't think it's like it's not the same as other countries you if you came in and the chinese like to come in and corrupt elites um i think the turks will take chinese money but they won't give ports to the chinese they wouldn't sign things away that would be against turkish national interests or you know turkish national security um and so Mm -hmm. i think that the chinese sort of recognize that and that's also about the relationship that they've had you know, it's kind of like a bridge, you know, of the two countries along the the New Silk Road, the, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative that China's been trying to build to Europe. <clears throat> I think you see that they've both been trying to provide a certain level of stability in a lot of inst- and unstable countries. Um, yeah. but, it's, but the question is, how far east can, can Turkey really go? Um, and I think that's the limits of Turkish money and, uh, Tur- you know, Turkish mm-hmm. soft power and Turkish hard power. So I think it's more China in places like Kazakhstan, uh, but you know, but it's it's not as far as you think. Yeah, you
0: know, no, you know, what I mean? it's not.
1: I was just gonna say in your mind, I mean, you think it's like millions and millions of miles, but it's actually it's just a couple of countries away. You know, these these countries are relatively yeah. close to each other.
0: I think this gets to you know why we're talking about Turkey today. The so what? Why why should we be watching Turkey closely?
1: because partly is because turkey is a power and has an aspirations to being even a greater power um, and it will do whatever it needs to do to, to reach those uh, meet those aspirations uh, now whether or not those those aspirations are whether it can achieve those things is is another matter but the fact is that this is a country that's it's straddling two worlds it has – it sees itself mm-hmm. as a key player in the, and has it's proved itself to be a key player. Um, so – and for a lot of Western com- uh, companies, by the way, I mean, they they used they have until recently used Turkey as sort of a bridge way to get um, in business mm-hmm. into the Middle East, North Africa, or into Asia, or uh, into, you know, all those uh, – the southern – the Caucasus and whatnot. That's, the, your, that's your gateway uh, to get into those places. Um, yeah. But it's it just – I guess it's just it'll be interesting to see. I think in the next six months to a year, uh, especially what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, and how uh, they set themselves up for that. Um, but also look for their mm-hmm. relationships with countries like Israel. Uh, there's an alignment. You know, it's like there's it's funny, but like Egypt, Israel, and Turkey sort of you know quietly align on certain things. I think they look at security the same way. I think they look at um, economics and. Uh, And I think they look at the Eastern Mediterranean, and I think that the three of them, you know, might become a power block uh, in in some Mm. time in the future.
0: That would be really interesting.
1: I mean, they have their Achilles heel. All three countries have their Achilles heels economically. Uh, So, I mean, that's the other side, too. Um, The flip side is, I mean, food shocks, energy shocks, these are things that will affect, you know, all these countries. I mean, Turkey is somewhat independent, I think, you know, uh, for foodstuffs. But for energy, it's more reliant. So that's why it's trying to build its relationships with the Gulf states. That's why it's establishing. It you know, Qatar allowed it to establish. And that's the other thing, too, seen as a counterbalance to Saudi Arabia. It's a counterbalance to Iran. So now the question is you know, how effective I feel like when it can you, it
0: when be. You on, when you get on like one of those old-school scales, I feel like Turkey is like the one-pound weight that tips it back and forth like it's it's not a heavy weight it's not like the big 50 pounds or 20 pound level weight it's like the one pound that like makes or breaks it yeah and it goes back and forth a lot more yeah
1: that's an. what I yeah.
0: compared turkey to any number of turkeys. a gambler <laughs> now turkey is a weight um I think yeah I mean I think one of the things that I truly love and embrace about Turkey is just, you know, that they are kind of wily, but also they change. They are not so stuck in tradition that they can't change. In fact, I mean, their ability to evolve, I, I think will continue to ensure their survival. Um, I think we need to think about what happens next as far as, you know, if this, if this leadership falls for any reason or dies or what have you, what does that next, um, you know, that, that succession plan look like? That one I have a big question mark about, Um, but for the most part, I do also kind of believe that Turkey will always be Turkey and they will continue to evolve. They will continue to, to look out for their best interest and continue to, to try to play a bigger role on the global stage.
1: Well, as people should know now that they've listened, this is our third episode and people should know that we always have to bring up demographics and geography. Um, Turkey has positive demographics and Turkey does have uh, its geographic location makes it vital. And that's the big thing is yeah. that that's if if lack of anything else is that uh, geography has positioned Turkey in a place where um it's always going to be a bridge between different uh, you know different economic uh, centers
0: and you see countries that have leaned into education and prioritizing education as being really, they they have a tendency to thrive. And so I think that also is another another sort of indicator that Turkey is going to continue to thrive.
1: To get back to your, your original uh, question, though, you know, what comes after Erdogan, I don't know. Uh, I think in some ways, I think Erdogan has been uh, a driving force. I mean, his party, his Freedom and Justice Party, FJP, has been... Well, he helped to start it, and he's been one of the main, you know, proponents for pushing it. And so, you're not exactly sure, you know, is there somebody who can come behind him and maintain the momentum? Uh, would the military reestablish its role? Uh, it's possible. Uh, the power elites who've been sort of driven underground by Erdogan's, because uh, you know, Erdogan's been going after, I think, a lot of the traditional. Uh, the, the traditional elites and the traditional power centers, mm-hmm. um, those, a lot of those have been driven underground, but I'm not 100% sure. Plus, I mean, there's a the younger generation of people within uh, Turkey, especially the, the urban uh, youth, I think, are more... Um, I think that they want to be, I think, more aligned, have a more, I think, Western alignment rather than a traditional <laughs> Eastern alignment. But once again, if you're out in the Eastern part of the country from Anatolia, you're going to be, you know, you're more of a farmer. Uh, you're down South on the Syrian border. You're up near Kurdistan. That's a totally different country. Um, and you may be more conservative. And
0: you see this sort of reintroduction of religion too, right. um, that I think can, can sort of shift things and shift, shift the culture as well.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think that the key here is that it's, it's a, it, as we said in the very beginning, it's a, it's a country of, of paradox and dichotomies. It's a country that can be two things at once. Um, it can be okay. secular and religious. It can be Western-looking and Eastern-looking. Um, it can be industrialized and also agrarian. Um, it can be, there can be a certain amount of, uh, of creative freedoms, but also you know, a crackdown on certain things. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, but it's also, I think that's that part of the world. I mean, Syria before it collapsed into anarchy was sort of the same thing. Um, you know, people told me, um, I'm Syrian, by the way, I don't know if people that's, but I, I was was adopted. So I'm not really, I guess I'm not really Syrian, Syrian, but people that I met who had come from Syria.
0: you are. I am. Yeah.
1: Right, exactly. But at least, <laughs> at least you know, the, the chassis is, is Syrian. Um, but yeah. but one of the key things is is that I, a lot of people that had been living in Syria, you know, during under the previous Assad regime, said that there was a surprising amount of freedom and which you could do as long as you had money and you didn't you didn't say anything against the regime, you could pretty much do a lot of other things. Uh, and I would mm-hmm. say that that part of the world is sort of like that. As long as you didn't criticize, you know. Uh, if you don't weren't rock criticized, the boat. right? Don't rock the boat. Just do your thing, and everything will be fine. I don't know how. I don't know how sustainable that is. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things is is that I mean, remember Turkey is you know, uh, Turkey is cognizant that it has a failed state on its southern border. Um, it is yeah. concerned about you know the spread of uh, of I think Islamic fundamentalism and it is concerned it would i don't think turkey would go so far as to allow itself to become you know uh in the other direction become you know a uh religious driven state i think it's just using it it's Mm -hmm. being pragmatic again saying you know secularism got us this and so now we have to go the next step and do this um but i would be watching for that sort of thing and make sure that there isn't I'm, there is a very robust uh, security apparatus in Turkey. That's the other side too, and maybe sometime we—I'd mm. uh, love to tell you some stories of things I've heard, but I think it would, would go down a rabbit hole, you know. Of, but uh, about what happens in Turkey? But
0: maybe we save that for for our after hours or our office hours um, podcast right. that we have planned.
1: Exactly, that'll be the the, the, the special after hours.
0: Yeah. So, Michael, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening. I I remain completely entranced by Turkey. I think that there are there is always something to learn. There's always something to try to understand. You know, there are some few basic principles that Turkey will always get something out of it. Turkey will always look for the right angle, but at the same time, um, it's an incredibly vital culture. It is their art. We didn't even get to their, their art and culinary scene, which is incredible. Uh, You know, it's been influenced literally by practically everybody. Um, But I think it's also one that we need to keep an eye on because it plays such a central role in so many different, you know, dynamics, relationships and events. Um, So just to do a little bit of housekeeping before we close out we wanted to talk with you a little bit about our plans, which is we're going to try to post a show probably once every couple weeks, you know, just, just for manageability, but we would love to hear different ideas of what you'd like us to talk to or talk about. Also, thank you very much for, for rating our show uh, subscribing to it. Um, We're starting to see an uptick there. That's really exciting to be three shows in and, and, Already seeing that, so thank you very much. Also, thank you for bearing with our audio. Uh, we are learning as we go. Um, I think this is our first episode where we may not have to record the show multiple times, so that's a that's a big step for us. But we wanted to to say we appreciate your patience and understanding as we figure out how to do all of this. I know it'll shock you, but we are not yet professional podcasters. Otherwise, thank you so much. I hope you have a great week and hope you enjoyed the show.
1: Thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of The Canary Group. If you like us, please subscribe and give us five stars on your favorite listening app.
1: Have something you'd like us to dig into? You could reach us at info at canarygroup.org.
0: You can also find us online at www.canarygroup.org and on social media at canarygroup.org.